0: I'm curious if any of you felt like you've been in this situation where you just said, I, I can't please everybody in this situation, that no matter what I decide, or no matter what I do, um, somebody is going to be upset about it, or they're going to be hurt by it, or disturbed by it, or, or not agree with it, and you're just in this situation, well, I can't make everyone happy, and maybe in those situations you find it easy to say, well... You know that's okay. I'm just you know going to do try to do its best, and um, not going to make everyone happy. Or maybe in those situations, you just kind of agonize and agonize and agonize, and you kind of go from person to person to person to try and find a solution that okay, everyone's going to be happy with me. Um, you know, everyone's going to be pleased with me. We're all going to walk away saying, "Oh, that was good." Um, but the reality is, most of the time, we get in situations where uh, we can't really do a like you know a win-win. On both sides, or a win-win, you know, five different ways, but sometimes there's kind of win-lose situations, or like, I can make this person happy, and I feel like that's what's best, uh, but this person, they're just not going to be happy with that, or, you know, I, you might be feeling, I need to do what I think is best for me, um, even though it's going to make other people unhappy, and so we get in those situations where we feel like we can make everyone happy, and this book that we've been going through, First Peter, uh, the way I named it different, um, as kind of what the whole letter is about, is that Peter's writing to this group of people and they put their trust in Jesus. They heard the good news. Hey, Jesus came and he has died for our sins that we might be reconciled to God. And now if you want to be part of that, if you want to come back to God, it's surrender to him as your king and he's the one that's going to bring you to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so these people heard this message uh, in ancient Turkey and they put their trust in Jesus. They surrendered to him uh, but then they're finding it's very difficult to live that out, that uh, they now have a new relationship, a new allegiance. Uh, it's not Caesar is Lord, but it's Jesus is Lord. It's not the gods of the Roman Empire, but it's now the one true God of Israel. And they're discovering that their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers, people around them are uh, not responding in an easy way to this, that they're saying, I'm happy. I'm happy with your choice you've made. They're in this situation where they can't make everyone happy. They can't please everyone. They're saying, I know that this is what is true. I know it deep in my bones and in my heart. And I have this community of other people around me who also know that it's true. And yet, there's other people who are not uh, happy with what we've done. And so, Peter's really writing, how do you remain different in a world that makes it difficult to be different? And the... Today, this passage we're looking at, First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he really breaks it down as kind of two lifestyles. Uh, there's this lifestyle that the, these Christians left, and then there's the lifestyle that they're called to. And so we're going to look at both of those uh, in, in turn. So the first is uh, verses 1 through 6 of First Peter chapter 4. And really, the, what, the main thing he says here is, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Uh, he starts off by saying in verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And that word, arm yourselves, is, is this image of going into a battle, being a warrior. Like, there's a fight ahead of you, and you need to arm yourself for this fight. Um, and what are they supposed to arm, arm themselves with? It's not, you know, physical things, swords or guns. Or, I mean, they don't have guns, but you know, what things to fight people with. But it says, uh, since Christ suffered in the flesh, that's what he did, now arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. The way of thinking that says, I'm going to suffer in the flesh. His mindset was, first there's suffering, and then there's glory. There's, if we went back up to the passage that uh, uh, Brian uh, Herman brought to us last week, it's this, suffering and glory, suffering in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. Judged in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. Resurrection, it's the will of God not the will of the world. And that was Jesus' way of thinking. That He's uh, died to sin. He's living for God. And so they're saying, uh, Peter's saying, hey, this mindset that Christ have had that this, they're suffering now, if you're going to be uh, true to God, committed to God, the world doesn't like that. And so there's going to be suffering. There's going to be rejection, ridicule, maligning, people talking behind your back. They're going to think you're weird because you're different than them. It's Loyal to God now and suffering, but then glory. Suffering, then glory. That's the path that Jesus walked, and that's the path he calls us to as well. And in verse, he says, uh, at the rest of verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And we might wonder, okay, so if I suffer now for my faith, that means I'm sinless? All sin in my life has gone. I've ceased from sin. There's no more sin. Um, We you know, sometimes when you're up against a passage or a a phrase that you're like, that seems to be saying something that I'm not sure I'm supposed to believe. And you can think, okay, he says ceased from sin. What doesn't he mean by that? Based on other things Peter said in this book, or based on other parts of the Bible, that is it really true that a Christian can hope to cease? from sinning, that we never do anything wrong, we never say no to God in our life. And we know he's not saying that. And what he really means is uh, their sinful lifestyle. He goes on in verse 2, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so he's saying you're no longer living for these human passions. That's what it means to cease from sin. But he doesn't mean just... You never do anything wrong, ever. You never disobey God. You never doubt. You're never uh, faithless. Um, he really lists out what are these human passions that you might live for. He make, gives them a list in verse 3. So he says, uh, Living no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, For the time that past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And by Gentiles, he means people who have not responded to God. Uh, people who are not God's people. Um, And what do they do? They're living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And sometimes when there's lists like this of this is the life you left behind or this is what it looks like to live for the world. uh, For instance, in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes out things kind of like this, orgies and witchcraft and drunkenness. But then he also has alongside of things like envy and strife. Uh, of dissension, of like kind of fighting amongst each other. And this list doesn't really include those relational things. It's really kind of those big lifestyle things. Maybe you've known someone, or maybe you, yourself, were living in a life where it's like, yeah, some of these things were on my list. You know, sensuality and drunkenness and drinking parties. And that's what I was living for. And then all of a sudden, you surrender to Jesus and you just stop those things right off the bat. And when you stop those things, though, it's not as if You now are perfect. No, those really big lifestyle sins. It's like, I stopped that. I stopped drinking. I didn't want it anymore. I stopped, you know, whatever it is. And I started giving my life to God. But then as you went along, you discovered, oh, those weren't the only things that were a problem in my life. I actually had these other things, how I treated people, um, that I wasn't thankful. And so you start discovering kind of the more subtle things, the more relational things um, that you're needing to grow in. But what he's saying is, look, you trusted in Jesus, you left this lifestyle behind that everyone else in the world was living, and so now if you're suffering because of that lifestyle, it's because you've ceased from those things that people are uh, looking at you and they're wondering, what's going on here? Why, why aren't you coming to the parties anymore? And back in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, um, the two commands in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 really started off this whole section. And there, in that command, he said, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So this lifestyle, following these passions of the flesh, he's saying that is going to wage war against your soul. Abstain from that. And it's interesting that in that verse he said, wage war, and then now he later says, uh, arm yourselves. It's like you have this war, of uh, these passions of the flesh that will destroy your soul. And now he's saying, arm yourselves. You're having a hard time. People are pressuring you and wanting you to fit in, and but arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. Yes, it's suffering and hard and difficult now, but the end is glory. You've died to sin, now live for God. And they would have been reminded back in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, it says you've left those ways of your ancestors behind. Why? Because you've been ransomed, not by the blood of bulls and goats and rams, but by the blood of Christ. You've been rescued from that way of living, that lifestyle where it was doing poor against your soul, destroying you from the inside out. You were rescued from that by Jesus' blood, paying for you to come out of that. And he also said in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, that we now, uh, let me just go back to get the exact words. Chapter 2, verse 9 uh, says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies." of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So they've been called out of that darkness, that way of living, that wages war war against their very being, and they've been called out of that, out of that darkness, into God's light. And So he's saying, don't arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. You're in the light, but the darkness wants you to come back, but it's suffering now, and then glory. And so he tells them how how people have been responding to this. They've had this huge lifestyle change. All those things that everyone was doing, that they're involved in, now they've completely left that lifestyle. And it says in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, with respect to this, with respect to that list of things, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, you've left that. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you and so the people that were their friends their relatives their acquaintances their neighbors co-workers are surprised what what are you doing why why weren't you at the you know why weren't you at the temple doing this why weren't you at the party this week why uh, did you abstain from all these things that we used to do together you're kind of boring now why aren't you doing this with us and he says they're surprised uh, but also they malign you. And actually, the, the Greek word is blaspheme, usually a word that's you know, associated with worship. And so in a way, it's like they're disrespecting you and disrespecting the God you worship is that they're talking bad about you, maligning you, belittling you, disrespecting you, saying, what are you doing? Like You think you're holier than now? You're better than us now? Like You've got this new God, this new life, this new community? You, why, you left us for them, and they're, you know, people are surprised in maligning them. But then he, so basically, you know, people aren't okay with it. And this is why they need to arm themselves with Christ's way of thinking that the world is not going to understand how you're doing, what, how you're living, and what you're doing. And it's, right now, they're surprised and they're maligning you, but there's praise and glory and honor in the future, just like it was for Jesus. And then he tells them in verse 5 but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so they're judging you, basically. They're surprised and maligning you. It's like they've offered their judgment. This was the standard of how we lived. And now they're judging them based on this standard. Like, you're, we're going to put you down. You're not living how you're supposed to live. But then Peter tells them, don't worry about how they're judging you and evaluating you because they're going to be judged. There's, one day they will stand before the king and they're going to have to answer for their lifestyle. And in many ways, we've seen throughout this book, where he says, when people curse you, bless them. Uh, when they revile you, don't revile in return. Be sinless have, uh, and go through sinless suffering like Jesus. And a lot of it, it was silence. So it's like, you know, they're maligning you. Don't malign them back. Don't even threaten them, saying, well, you're going to get it when Jesus comes back. It's just like, Jesus is going to take care of this. You don't need to take care of us. this. God's going to make everything right. And uh, he had said verse, earlier in chapter 2, verse 23, uh, he told them, how, how did Jesus live? It said, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And a lot of times we desire justice, that they shouldn't get away with that. Uh, this person should be held accountable for that, that uh, something needs to be done to make this right. And really, the, the Bible tells us, leave that in the hands of God. It's not up to us to make all things right. It's up to the judge. And so we entrust ourselves to the judge who will judge justly and seize it all. And so he's saying, don't put your hope in these people, uh, in their approval, in what they think of your life, in their opinion of you. But remember, it, this is all temporary. Ultimately, remember who is approving of you. And Back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, it said, where your faith is going to end is being tested right now. It's being purified. And where it ends is when Jesus comes back, there'll be honor and glory and praise from him. And so don't worry about this honor and glory and praise from these people around you. Then in verse 6, a bit of a confusing verse. It says, uh, okay, you know, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. Uh, why do we think that? Or, you know, what's the reason for that? Verse 6 says, for, for this is why the gospel... Was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are they might live in the spirit the way God does and so those first words why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead and so then some people think okay, Jesus descended into hell or into the underworld and preached the gospel to people who were dead and they had an opportunity to respond to the gospel, even though they had died before ever hearing it. Um, it's really not what it's saying here, um, and it would be bad to conclude what I just said based on this one verse that's unclear and isn't supported elsewhere. Then there's multiple options for what it's saying. So we it would not be very wise to conclude, oh, Jesus went and preached to dead people, and he's still doing so today so that people can respond to the gospel after they're dead. Um, that's not the case what we're talking about here. And the NIV translation m- makes an interpretive decision, and it adds the word "now," that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, that these people, when they are alive, heard about Jesus, and they are now dead. They had the gospel preached to them, even though they're now dead. So they had this opportunity to respond that, and you, perhaps the, these people that were against the Christian community here are saying... You're talking about this guy who died and rose from the dead, and now you're going to be alive with him, but you guys are dying. Uh, you're no different than us. You're dying just like the rest of us. And so uh, what, why should we believe in this Jesus guy who's going to allow us not to die um, forever? And you guys are dying just like us. And uh, Peter's response is, um, Yes, we still die in the flesh, but we're raised to life by the Spirit of God. Uh, It's Yeah, they've died, but death doesn't have the last word in our lives. We will die, and then when Jesus returns, we'll make us alive again. So this section talking about their old lifestyle, Peter once again is coming back to this big theme in the letter is, you're different. You have been called out of the darkness by God. You aren't citizens of this world. You're citizens of a different kingdom. You don't belong to this people that God has made you his people. And people are going to look at you like you're sojourners, like you're strangers, like you're exiles, like you're, you're refugees who kind of aren't belonging to this country anymore. Uh, you're not from around here kind of thing. And the reality is they've been, I mean, Peter earlier calls it born again, that you, God caused you to be born again And this like, you know, it's not that we literally like, go back in my, our mother's womb and are born again, but it's, you were one type of person and now you're a completely different type of person. It's like you got born again. You know, you became someone different and they've had such a radical change in their life that that's what it looked like, that they don't participate in the normal, ordinary activities of the society. It's kind of like, everyone's doing it. Why aren't you guys? They look strange. They look weird. They look odd. They don't fit in. And in the second half of this passage, starting in verse 7 through 11, the topics of judgment and resurrection, uh, and which is talking about the end, um, lead to to kind of a a statement. Okay, if the end is coming, if yes, Jesus is going to judge, and yes, that's where our hope is, how ought we to live? Yes, we left those things, but what are we supposed to do? Don't do that, but what should we do? And that's what he starts with in verse uh, 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And as we get go through this, um, you might think, okay, if the end is at hand, which they said that throughout the whole New Testament that the end is at hand, Um, and the reality is we don't know when the end is. We don't know when Jesus will return. And even when Jesus was asked by his disciples, he said, "That's not." For me to know. That's the Father. and So it's not for you to know either. But what we're told to do is live in constant expectation that the end is coming. I I like the image of, uh, we're in the fourth quarter uh, but there's no time clock. We don't know how much time is left on the clock. We know it's getting to the end of the game but we don't know how much time is left. And so he says, you know, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Uh, You don't plan for the thief to come. Um, You don't know when the thief comes but He says Christians shouldn't be surprised when he comes back. We should have been ready, expectant, wanting it, and desiring it, and praying for it. Uh, He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And that sober-minded is like the opposite of drunkenness, uh, that there's a there's this clarity that we're not caught up in what the world's doing, and we're, we have this self-control, we aren't giving in to the passions of the flesh, the worldly lifestyle, but it's like, be alert, be ready. Jesus is coming at any moment, and you want to be ready for that. And so there's this perspective, the end is at hand, it can come at any time, that influences why we pray, how we pray, and what we pray for. And then he gives them three one another commands. So verse eight, he says, "Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins." And I find what's interesting. He's going to say, "Love one another." He's going to say, "Show hospitality to one another, serve one another." And it's interesting that he's like, "The end is at hand." And then you might expect some, you know, crazy ways to live, uh, like, you know, so quit your jobs because there's no point in working, or you know, go do this or go, you know, just go do these radical things. The end is at hand. The end is coming, and maybe you see, you know, in groups that think they have it nailed down to this specific date, and then it's like, yeah, the end is coming. So we've completely, you know, kind of left the world and we're just living, you know, in a commune somewhere or whatever it is. And really, what he says is, uh, it's not. It's about these ordinary relational things: pray, uh, love, uh, show hospitality when you can have people in your homes, uh, and. And serve. And it's like, oh wait, you just said the end is at hand. And now you just said these really normal, ordinary things to do. Uh, and in many ways, they're normal and ordinary, but they're also very countercultural and radical and are in contrast to what the world around us does. And so there's this praying of hoping. And then he says these three one another commands in verses 8 through 11. First, it's want, love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. He starts it by saying, above all, above all, whatever you do, love one another earnestly. And earnestly is really about uh, keep doing it. Don't get tired of it. Uh, keep going, keep going. And he, he mentioned it uh, back in one twenty, uh, chapter 1, verses 22, um, saying, love one another earnestly. And why are they to do that? He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so we talked about you've ceased from sin. That can't mean all sin because now he says, okay, Christian community, keep loving one another because love will cover over a multitude of sins. And really the, the image here is, um, let's say there's somebody that you know, has hurt me, has sinned against me, has done something wrong to me. Um, And it's almost like when I see that person, he's like, love covers over a multitude of sins. And so it's like, it's like I put my hand over those, you know, if you could see sin, it's like I put my hand over their sins. And so it's like love covers over people's sins against us so that we don't treat them according to their sins. We don't deal with them according to their sins, but we love them. We love them as we've been loved. It's this overlooking sin. Not that we just say, you know, in the Christian community, Uh, we should just be getting to sin and do whatever we want, but it's actually saying the thing above all that you should do is not confronting one another's sins, but actually loving each other despite sin, uh, in spite of sin, that you see each other's flaws and failures and ways you're falling short and hurting each other, and yet you're still committed to each other. You're not dealing with each other according to sin. And really, there's two ways to love someone, according to law or according to grace. Loving someone according to the law is, this is what you deserve. I'm going to love you as much as you deserve. Loving someone according to grace is, I'm going to love you uh, the opposite of what you deserve uh, in showing you grace. And so he's encouraging them, don't give people what you think they deserve. That's transactional relationships. And a phrase I found helpful is, uh, keep the person bigger than the problem or pain. Or keep the relationship with the person bigger than the problem or pain that they've caused. It's like, okay, they've done this hurtful thing. They've done this thing they shouldn't have done. Maybe it's not even towards you. Maybe it's towards someone else. Or maybe it's like they slipped up and they went back into this worldly lifestyle. And now it's keep the relationship with that person bigger than the problem or pain that you see. Secondly, he says, show hospitality to one another. In verse 9, which is a huge theme in the Bible and which is you know, when the Bible talks about hospitality don't think of well I threw this huge gigantic party and like I entertained it's different than entertaining hospitality is you are making someone feel at home in a place that isn't their home that they're feeling at home it could be literally your house that's usually what they're thinking of but it could be just in your presence or at lunch, at work but it's making someone feel at home uh, when they aren't at home and we're told in the Bible uh, by Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. So that's that first command, loving one another as Jesus <coughs> has loved us. Don't love one another as they as the other person has loved you. Love one another as Jesus has loved us. And we're also told, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you in Romans 15.7. That's the hospitality of like welcoming people into our lives, welcoming them into our homes, welcoming them into... Whatever it would be, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And he modifies it, we'll come back to this, without grumbling. We'll come back to why does he say without grumbling? And then he says the third one another command. By the way, there's like 59 one another commands in the Bible. And if you really want to define what is the church supposed to be, it's all these people that are doing these one another's to each other love one another, show hospitality to one another. (laughs) And in verses ten through eleven, he says, "Serve one another." Verses ten through eleven uh, say this: "As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." And so, there's three uh, kind of key words here that help us learn what it means to serve one another. You've received a gift; uh, be a good steward of God's varied grace. So the the gifts we've received as people, skills, talents, um, passions, whatever it might be, um, those are the gifts. And a synonym would be uh, God's very grace, that each one of us has something that God has given us that he wants to use to bless other people in this body. That you have something to offer other people here. And when you offer it, they feel blessed by you when you do it. And he kind of... Breaks it down into two different types of gifts speaking gifts and serving gifts. So, verse 11, he says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so, it's kind of like, you know, in general, these two categories there's speaking gifts, it could be teaching or preaching or words of affirmation or just Sensing, uh, Sometimes the Bible calls it prophecy. Sensing, I feel like God wants me to say this to that person. I'm not sure why. Uh, Things like that, speaking gifts. And then serving gifts, more kind of hands-on, physical. And really, if you want to figure out what gifts has God given me, take some time to reflect uh, how. When do others feel blessed by you? Or what are you doing when others say, that really blessed me, or thank you, that really helped me? Um and if you aren't sure like I don't know if somebody's said that to me. so you can reflect how do others feel blessed by me? or you can ask people like ask a spouse or ask a friend, like, hey, um, how have I blessed you? Like when you think of me, what are the ways I bless you And then you can be like, okay, I think these are kind of these are gifts that God's given me because he's using it to love people and serve people uh, in my life. So these one another commands really we're called to be in. Uh, in quotes, an as-Christ community. As Christ has loved you, love one another. As Christ has welcomed you, welcome one another. As Christ has served you, uh, serve one another. And go on and on. As Christ has forgiven you, forgive one another. Uh, as, as Christ is patient with you, be patient with one another. And there's, like I said, there's like 59 of them in the Bible. And so the, the standard for how we're to treat one another is Jesus, who he is, and what he's done, as Jesus Christ has done this for you, so do that to one another. And that's really the measure of our health as a Christian community: is are we treating one another as Christ has treated us? And so, what is a radical countercultural lifestyle? If you have this lifestyle you left. Here's the lifestyle God's calling you to. Uh, I mean, first you're praying. <laughs> you know, you're praying about with Jesus-centered prayers. You love despite people's sin. (coughs) You gladly use your home to make others feel at home. You use your gifts for others' good and not your own. And Brian pointed out last week this list of a couple things uh, in, uh, let me see, the verses are up in chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And those things, and these things we just read about here that we're supposed to do with one another, are very odd looking in a world. People will surely look at it and say, Wow, you guys really love one another. You really serve one another. And you just don't seem to care about your stuff for you. You use it for other people. And those are things the world admires but has a very hard time doing. And so it's always interesting when it's like, you know what? How do you shine as lights in this dark world? Love each other, have sympathy for each other, show empathy. Um, and use your gifts to serve other people. And it's just basically God returning us to what does it mean to be a healthy human being that can actually treat other people as he's treated us? That's really what God's trying to restore. Um, And it is radical, and it's not radical at the same time. And this word, you know, different, is that when people see us living like that, it's like you live like you aren't from around here, even though you've lived here your whole life. Like you seem to be living by... Some sort of different standard than the rest of us are on. Like there's a different way that you decide what to do, and it's like, yeah, that's uh, reflecting the character of the God, the King that I worship. And so, as we can cons- begin to consider, how does this come down into our lives? And by the way, the word, if I didn't make clear already, the word suffering in this book, um, rarely, really, he's not talking about suffering, um, you know, from like. Sicknesses or job loss. Mostly, what he's focused on is the type of suffering that comes because of faith in Christ that people are uh, fighting against us and showing hostility. So that's the kind of suffering. And I named this message uh, "lifestyle with the end in mind." We might say, um, you know, begin with the end in mind, and this is living with the end in mind. And we're different both because of what we don't do—that was verses one through six—and by what we do, verses seven through. And so there's this lifestyle we've left. Arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking. It's suffering now. I know it's hard. And then it's going to be glory. And people are judging you by that standard, but they're actually going to be judged uh, as well. So don't worry about it. And then there's the lifestyle you had, and there's the lifestyle you have, which comes from hope in Jesus, living according to his standard, who he is, what he's done. And so really, this is kind of like, what is life all about? That that list we read Uh, In verse uh, 3, of all those things, like people living in that lifestyle might think, this is what life is all about. The the next party or the next high or the next, you know, know, whatever it is. And those are really extreme examples. But he's saying, no, that's not what life is all about. Uh, Life for you is now all about something else. Uh, You've left that. And now it's all about Jesus.
1: This part of the sermon wasn't recorded on Sunday. And so I'm adding it now after the fact. Uh, so as we close this sermon, there's really four areas of life that Peter directs us towards. And these are four areas where our lifestyle changes, where uh, it's no longer about us, but it's all about Jesus. When we And hope is future-oriented. So when we look at the end of where everything's going, we see who we're going to stand before is Jesus, the one who is welcoming us into his presence. So that changes how we live. It changes our lifestyle. So it changes prayer. And so something you can ask yourself is, uh, what do I talk to God about? Uh, Do I talk to God about things that show I have this hope in the future and I'm heading towards Jesus and my prayers are shaped by that? And then love, what do you do with other people's sin? Uh, We tend, if we're looking towards the end of things and where our hope is, we tend not to have our hope in People being sinless towards us or never hurting us. And it just, when we have that big picture in mind of where everything is going and where our hope is at, um, those s- s- sins against us or just sins in general kind of just seem to fade in their importance. Lastly, hospitality. What do you do with your stuff, especially your home? Uh, and then also your food, but your resources. Are you using your resources and your home to make other people feel at home? Are you welcoming them, welcoming them into uh, your life and into your home? It could be not even at your house; could be at work, at lunchtime, or uh, wherever it is. But are you using your your time and your resources to welcome other people, or is it your hope is kind of in those things, and so you. Look at them as something you don't want to share because you're investing your hope in them. And lastly, serving. What do you do with the gifts and talents and strengths that God has given you? Do you look at the end and your hope is in Jesus and you want to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. And so you want to steward uh, the gifts he's given you for other people's good or is it mostly used for advancing yourself? And so ask yourself, uh, what do you talk to God about? What do you do with people's sin What do you do with your stuff? What do you do with your gifts, talents, and skills? And the question is, how do we become the kind of people for whom this is natural and normal, that we just live this way? We live for Jesus and we let him shape our life. And it's as I said earlier, we are an as-Christ community. We are an as-Christ people. As Christ has loved us, as Christ has welcomed us as Christ has served us, so we now serve one another. We put our love and our trust and our hope in him, and then we become like him. And part of the good news of this passage is, is that you can't make everyone happy. There will be situations where you can't please everyone. But what this passage tells us is you can make God happy. You can please God. Where Peter ends this passage, uh, he talks about uh, really what he's been driving at in this whole section is that it's all about glorifying God. And he says at the end of this passage that you would do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are citizens of a different kingdom. God's holy, chosen, set-apart people that we've been called out of darkness into his light, but we live amidst the darkness, making much of him, glorifying him, showing people what our king is like. Let's pray. Father, you have given us hope beyond our wildest dreams. And Lord, would you let this hope take over our lives? Would you let it affect every part of it? How we pray, how we love, what we do with people's sin, how we use our stuff, how we use the talents and gifts you've given us, Would you let this hope really become the anchor of our souls that we would live for Jesus and his return and his kingdom and what he's going to do and not for the things of this world that are passing away. In your son's name we pray. Amen.